Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Eilee, Roxana Espos, and Jordan Allen, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with his signature anthem, Let Freedom Ring. Tommy's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. Tom has a photo book out called Whatever It Takes that tracks his lifelong journey as an artist, an organizer, and an activist. The book is both illuminating and rousing, and I urge you to pick it up. TomMorelloBook.com. One word, TomMorelloBook.com. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. And we note that we're broadcasting from the traditional unceded lands of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. We acknowledge them, thank them, and honor the history of stolen land and resources, the history of the mass American genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in the shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. So let's keep asking, what is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? These good questions animate our every conversation and our ongoing reflection. Okay, soon, lady, I'm going to ask you to answer those questions. What is freedom? How do we get free? Not this episode, but coming up, okay? Okay. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is You Begin by Margaret Atwood. You begin this way. This is your hand. This is your eye. That is a fish, blue and flat, on the paper, almost the shape of an eye. This is your mouth. This is an O or a moon, whichever you like. This is yellow. Outside the window in the rain, green because it is summer, and beyond that, the trees and then the world, which is round and only has the colors of these nine crayons. This is the world, which is fuller and more difficult to learn than I have said. You are right to smudge it in that way, with the red and then the orange. The world burns. Once you have learned these words, you will learn that there are more words than you can ever learn. The word hand floats above your hand like a small cloud over a lake. The word hand anchors your hand to this table. Your hand is a warm stone I hold between two words. This is your hand. These are my hands. This is the world, which is round but not flat and has more colors than we can see. It begins. It has an end. This is what you will come back to. This is your hand. Thanks, lady. Our second regular feature is a free write, a time to release your imagination and react extemporaneously, enabling surprising new winds to gather strength, and then to release your imagination and allow those unexpected and astonishing winds to fly free. 
Here you can pause the podcast and write wildly, no need for edits or revisions, in response to this prompt. What do you do in a regular way to make yourself joyful and your life beautiful in the wreckage of the world? Start writing, and we'll be right here when you return. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. I'm going to leave you for a bit, Lighty, and talk to two dazzling artist activists, Charbriand Plummer and Rachel Wallace, who collaborate on an admirable activist art project called Stitch by Stitch. Rachel's an instructor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and Charbriand is the author of Diasporic Threads, Black Women, Fiber, and Textiles. I'll see you in a bit. Rachel Wallace and Charbriand Plummer, thank you so much for joining us under the tree. It's great to see you. It's good to see you too. Thanks so much for having us. You're welcome. I'm so thrilled that you're joining us. I guess I'd like to begin simply by asking you to talk a bit about your work um, on Stitch by Stitch and your work as artist activists. Maybe we'll begin with Charbriand. Sure. So I have had the lovely fortune of being involved in art, art making craft for a very long time. Um, I identify as a visual artist, although I've been shifting into other mediums lately, but um, my entry point into Stitch by Stitch was actually through Rachel as a friend and colleague, and she can share more, but um, this was supposed to be a convening in her backyard of friends of like minds that has since grown to many other things. But I feel like the conversation and the, the themes that we seek to explore um, required that we bring in other voices. But um, a little bit about me, I'm based in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I love being from the Deep South. I think we have such a rich legacy, especially as it relates to um, activism, civil rights, et cetera. And a lot of that intersects with my work, um, which specifically highlights the work of Black women within fiber and textiles um, and the work of the hand that we put forth in our creativity and how that can be used to facilitate change. But I can share more, but that's just a tidbit, at least, about me. I want to come back to, I want to, come back to all that, but Rachel, why don't you introduce yourself. Sure. Um, My name is Rachel Wallace. I'm a community quilter and organizer. I teach mostly, I teach sewing and quilt making and garments, things like that. But I also teach a little bit at the School of the Art Institute every summer. Um, And I, in my own practice, I've really uh, like been captivated by the way that quilting can and has create spaces for radical imagination, for people to come together and envision and work towards a more just world. Um, so as Sharbrian said, a few years back, I was just hoping together, I've managed to build a really amazing community of abolitionist quilters, right? So people who sew, who are really dedicated to working towards a a world without prisons and policing. And I was like, let's all just hang out in my backyard for a weekend and make things and dream together. And then COVID happened. And then somehow during the intervening years, it became a large um, public conference (laughs) at the School of the Art Institute next month. I'm not entirely sure how that happened, Um, but a big part of it was the 
enthusiasm and vision and brilliance of my collaborators, particularly Sherbrion and then Savneet Talwar, who's another professor at the School of the Art Institute, who just sort of latched on to this vision and have really been helping it build into something bigger than it could have ever been for a while now. For folks who don't understand kind of the background of all this, and, and I, I count myself among them, um, when you say quilting, um, working together in your backyard and so on, provides a space to release the radical imagination, go go deeper with, into that. What does that mean? Sherbrin, do you want to jump uh, into some of the history pieces of it? Yeah, so... You know, quilting has for a very long time been a space where um, folks, but especially women, have come together not just to, you know, build community and to enjoy being creative with one another, but it's quilting bees have long been a space for holding secrets, for, you know, building momentum, for ideation. Um, As we look throughout history specifically, quilting is, at least in my own research, what I consider to be one of the earliest uh, forms and representations of Black women's creative work. And it's within those spaces that they can build kinship with one another, um, in addition to sort of planning and plotting and being able to discuss all the things that were going on in their respective communities. Um, You have groups such as the Freedom Quilting Bee in Alabama and many others um, who used quilting bees as a way to sort of talk about community issues and then go back out and advocate for said issues. Um, And they also used quilting and work of the hand as a way to uh, fundraise and create different means to support freedom riders and other folks who were out on the front lines um, advocating and fighting for civil rights. So throughout the decades, if you do sort of this tracking, and that's some of what we're trying to explore, sort of that historical piece, if you look at quilting from enslavement to present day, these sort of notions of abolitionism, work of the hand, creative arts, there have always been these points of overlap, be it um, as a means of creating and, you know, eliciting capital or to get together to dream, like Rachel said, to build radical imagination. These spaces have always been um, the space for that. They've been a safe space. They've been a protective space, um, but one always sort of centered and built around action in many ways. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it really is amazing. You you do see this history going back essentially to the beginnings of quilting as a popular art and pastime. So you can see um, quilts were a huge source of fundraising for the movements to ab- abolish slavery in the U.S. and in the U.K. And not only were they a way that um, women could help raise money, but they were in and of themselves political pieces. So you, you can see quilts made with imagery, with poetry, with writing against abolition. And I think if you look at those early, I mean, against slavery, sorry. If you look at, if you look at these earlier pieces, something that we also really feel is one of the powers that quilts have is really an emotional power, right? So we make quilts, quilts are made to mark births, to mark deaths, to mark weddings. Um, These are like a physical representation of care in our community, right? Like you, you make a quilt to show someone your love for them. And so if we look back, quilters have used quilts as a way to expand that circle of care into spaces that isn't necessarily always recognized within their communities. So whether that's, um, you know, abolitionist quilters, 
asking other women to care about enslaved mothers the way that they would care about mothers in their own communities. Or you can take a more recent example if we look at the AIDS quilt, right? Mm. So this huge project in which queer and trans people um, used art, used quilting to say, we need to expand our notion of care beyond sort of the mainstream in the U.S. We need to recognize the love and loss that the AIDS epidemic has created and to sort of make visible those connections, that love and that heartbreak. Um, And there are so many great examples of this. Uh, But quilting really is, it's at its core, it's this really emotional process, and it's a really great way to reach people where they're less, like, armored, right? You can, you, you... tug at people's heartstrings, you tug at people's feelings for their family, and you start to ask questions about where those feelings end and who has been left out of those feelings, you know? There's something special about the relationship between the individual and the collective, because a quilt represents both, right? You have every individual represented through their quilt or through their square or through their participation but then it's such the way you're describing it it really results in a collective expression could you say something about that Rachel had like the most perfect beautiful summary I think um yeah around this collective piece there are so many different entry points and to your point Rachel about sort of from the time we arrive to the time we leave we're sort of swaddled in cloth I think everyone I don't know about you but Everyone that I've encountered, if we tell them what we're doing, we talk about quilts, they all have a memory, be it their grandmother, their mother, whomever. Um, And so I really view quilts as the sort of vehicle for bearing witness. Um, I think there's something really special about building collective memory as well. So when I think about certain materials, when you start to um, sort of dissect quilts, especially from the familial side or even like a community that maybe came together to to create something, um, you have these pieces that are like sort of these totems and and markers of these different periods in time, the thing you can, you know, ascribe a story to and that story then gets passed on. So it's this way of of both honoring, building collective memory, um, but also kind of in some ways, bearing witness for generations to come so that certain things don't get lost. And I think there's something really special about that too that can sort of challenge how it is that we build collective memory and sort of hold communal knowledge. Um, It doesn't always have to be written. It doesn't always have to be documented through traditional means. Um, There are ways that we can continue to do so visually. And then we also have folks who I think are the holders and sort of like the future griots, they hold the quilts and those things get passed on. Um, so hopefully sometimes they, they disappear into the background a little bit. Um, but in many ways, you know, they, they interact and they switch hands and there's this way, I think there are multiple entry points depending on who you are and where you're coming from, but there is an entry point for everyone. And I think that's what makes the medium, um, so special, both those entry points and the means of like storytelling that sort of activates the work itself. Yeah, I mean, I think that generational piece is so key, right? Because quilts aren't just a horizontal conversation. They're a conversation with the past and with previous generations, with our own ancestors, right? This is a skill that has traditionally been passed down by family members, by elders in the community, and still in many ways is happening that way. Every generation of quilters is sort of taking the art of a previous generation and tweaking it and experimenting and doing new things. Um, But the other thing that I really love about quilts is that they're really slow. 
You cannot rush a quilt, right? One of the reasons why quilting has been communal is because it helps to have a lot of people to help you finish it, right? But it also speaks to this different way of doing organizing, uh, sort of outside of uh, like white supremacist or settler colonial models where we're just really taking the time to be with each other and to meditate on things and having these long conversations and realizing that we're not going to produce a thing in an hour or in a day or even in a week, that this is going to be a process of coming together and making together that's going to have to stretch out over a period of time. And that's a great metaphor for the struggle itself. I mean, the idea that in in our culture, everything has to happen right now and it has to be finished and we have to know what it means. And this kind of gives you the opportunity to meditate and marinate and grow slowly. I, I, I really love that image. I think it's useful for the movement writ large. But the other thing that I'm taken with that you're saying, and I'd like you to to go further on this point, is this idea that sitting together side by side opens a space for slow conversation, but also deeper conversation. I'm thinking, you mentioned the AIDS quilt, which was very meaningful to me many, many years ago, when nobody knew what AIDS was, and yet people found something to do to resist the, the, the plague of AIDS, um, in spite of the fact that we didn't really know what it was, and we didn't know how to stop it, but we did something in the face of nothingness. That was important. The other thing you're reminding me of is community gardening, where you can go out in a community where I live, near, you know, in the south side of Chicago, and leaning on a shovel next to somebody else leaning on a shovel opens a space of equality where you can have conversations that you might not have in a meeting or something like that. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, and I this became clear to me before I even started thinking about quilting as an organizing tool, is that when people are sitting and making together, they talk about all kinds of stuff that they wouldn't talk about. So you see people telling their like whole life story and their relationships with like their mother and their grandmother to total strangers. Um, I think having our hands being busy and not you know, looking down, not having to look at each other when we talk really helps. Um, so I think that is really magical. And I also think, I mean, you touched on two things, right? It's there's this desire when we don't know what else to do to do something, right? This ability to make in times of trauma, in times of frustration, in times of feeling overwhelmed. But I think what's really been crucial to me as an artist and as an organizer is how do we not just leave it with the making, right? I just, there are so many quilts, really well-meaning quilts that have been made with love that have taken up a lot of time and a lot of money and done very little to resolve the things that they're about, right? Mm. So like, how do we not just make, you know, people have been shipping quilts to the Ukraine, which like I appreciate the sentiment behind it. But when I think about the money that was used to purchase materials and mail quilts halfway around the world, I also think that there may be better uses for that money. 
And so how do we link our our making back together with organizing, like the AIDS quilt, right? It wasn't just this act of memorializing. It was embedded within a movement that was addressing these structural issues. If I can add to that, Rachel, I think you raised a valid point, which to to what you mentioned earlier, um, this notion of like craftivism and what it means. I think that's been one of the more... um, one of the more recent critiques of craftivism in itself is just like, is this something that someone is doing because they feel like they're making a statement, but it's really rooted in in them kind of needing to feel better versus it being sort of tied to a direct sort of call to action and sustained action. Um, Who are you connected to? What communities are you plugged into beyond this one specific gesture? And I love art. I love the power of art quilting, working with your hands as a way to sort of transmute some of that frenetic energy that we feel um, in times of crisis and when emotions are heightened. But what comes next? Um, Rachel, to your point, too, you were talking about sort of what it means to get together with folks and be in this shared space. And what it made me think of are two things that I really love about quilting, which are... um, sort of process and everyone having a role. So I love slow process. I love sort of breaking things down and dissecting it. And I think just as we sort of sit and decide how we're going to lay out a quilt, it's a beautiful metaphor for strategy and how that can be applied to a bunch of different scenarios. But also, um, you know, if you don't know how to sew, that's okay because somebody's going to need to press these seams. And we, if you know how to cut really straight, we might need you to cut some fabric. Um, or you can help us organize colors. You, might, you know, you might be a badass and you're great at color theory. Awesome. What, you know, how can we piece this together? But um, in kind of keeping with community gardening, like, okay, maybe you might not be strong enough to like really get in the ground with this shovel, but you, you know, a child can go and put some seeds down. There's all sorts of ways that you can be involved without feeling as though you have to be, you know, this amazingly skilled artist. And by the time you leave, you might learn something new. Um, And I also wanted to lift up, that's actually how Rachel and I met. She was doing um, a residency in New Orleans and we were at a table together stitching and talking about injustice as we are now. Um, But through that one moment came sustained interaction and a really beautiful friendship. And now we're here today. So I think that just demonstrates the power of like those really key pivotal moments. That that is a beautiful description, Charbriand. And, you know, one of the things I, that I, I'm finding another metaphor here, and that's a metaphor for good teaching. Because, you know, one of the things I've always loved in Chicago about the vocational schools is that a place like Chicago Vocational, if you go into the auto shop, there are 20, 25 people there. And not every one of them is as skilled as every other one of them, but everybody has something to do. And there's a collective, there's an energy and a consciousness of collectivity that emerges from that. And and I think that English classes could learn a lot from the auto shop because everybody should be able to do something and, and make a contribution in their own way to the collective wisdom that's that's in the room. And that's what this sounds like, the, the way you're describing it. Um, in order to come to something like Stitch by Stitch, which I want you to describe Stitch by Stitch and what's going to go on at this conference, but in order to come, how much skill do you need to have? None. No skill at all. It's so funny. We're like, you know, this is a conference about, uh, you know, by and for abolitionist quilters. But also there are quilters that don't necessarily consider themselves abolitionists. And also there are abolitionists who don't quilt. And also, (laughs) you know, there aren't a lot of... So the idea behind Stitch by Stitch is to bring, to create a space where people can come together 
across a lot of different, um, you know, area like creating a space to bring together academics, to bring together artists, to bring together activists, to bring together your your auntie who loves quilting, um, to be in conversation with each other because everybody has a piece of this puzzle, right? But they don't have all of them. And I think one of the things that's so hard is like so much of the knowledge around quilting is oral, is is passed down within families and within communities. So how can we have these conversations wherein academics or people from a fine art background can sit down and learn from and share from community quilters and activists as well? Um, so we have a really amazing opening night that's open to the general public, not just people who are participating in the conference. Um, so Ms. Dorothy Burge is going to be giving her keynote, who is just an amazing and incredible quilter and an incredible activist and someone who has been doing the work for longer than I've been alive, right? Who has been on the ground in the community doing the work. So she's going to talk about her incredible quilt making practice and activism around justice, policing, incarceration. Um, and she's going to be followed by a panel discussion with um, folks associated with the Prison and Neighborhood Arts and Education Project. So talking about the connections between art and abolition. Because even though they are, don't mostly do fiber stuff, they're, they're so deep in this conversation about art and abolition. And we've all learned so much from them. We really wanted to have their voices centered. And then on Saturday, we have a day of really incredible panels with panelists talking about their own practice, sharing their own art, doing skill building. There will be sewing going on so you can drop in and work on some quilts and also uh, sharing projects or campaigns they've been a part of. So we've got a couple of really amazing quilter activists who have been engaged or are currently engaged in inside outside collaborations with folks who are incarcerated so talking about what does it mean to make art and quilts uh with folks who are currently and formerly incarcerated and what are sort of the ethics and challenges around that um so i'm really excited i think the panels are going to be incredible shabrian what am i forgetting um, oh, the, the big day on Sunday and the exhibit. So um, later that evening on Saturday, we, um, thanks to the generosity of the Weinberg Newton Gallery, have a show that has work that aligns with the convening. So some of the folks who are part of the convening will have work on display and then we'll have a few other folks represented um, who may not necessarily be a part of the convening, but who are making amazing work. Um, quilts, other visual works um, that tie into the theme, and that will be that night at 6 p.m. And then Sunday, we have a community day of making at the P.O. Box Collective that we are really excited about. Um, and the theme is what does uh, solidarity look like? Radical empathy, visual voice, and collaborative quilt making. So folks can still come out, get their hands a little dirty. Um, Dorothy Burge and others will be there to lead the charge with that. And one of the things that I realized, Rachel, you said conference, I was like, I've almost been not calling it a conference for so long. I think I was anti-conference because I didn't want folks to feel like they had to come and it was this big stuffy thing. It's like, we might be at SAIC, but this is truly um, a labor of love. It is a very grassroots thing. It's our inaugural one. We don't even know what the next <laughs> one will look like, but we want to make the best of the one that we have here. 
Um, so I say that to say like folks should uh, anticipate no pretense, like just please come bring your full selves, bring your thoughts, bring your energy, um, your curiosities and even your challenges because it truly is um, supposed to be a way for us to learn and grow with one another. This sounds absolutely brilliant. So give us how they can, how folks who are listening can get to it. What's the website? What's the, what are the dates? Where are we going to be? At, <laughs> so the website is um, stitchingabolition.com. Um, so people can register there. We have a truly sliding scale registration cost. So it goes down to zero. We really want to encourage people. They have access to resources. They can give a little more, help support things like honorariums and travel for the presenters. But we really invite people to, to not pay anything and come participate. Um, the exhibit at Weinberg Newton Gallery is, uh, so the conference is July, Friday, July 15th, Saturday, July 16th, and Sunday, July 17th. Um, but the exhibit at Weinberg Newton Gallery will be open for about a month. And we're also going to be recording as much as possible of the conference and just putting it up on YouTube when it's over. So we really want to try and capture some of the wisdom that's shared and make it accessible to folks who wouldn't be able to come otherwise. And speaking of accessibility, we do have childcare um, provided. All of the spaces where we're going to be having events are wheelchair accessible, and we're really open to helping meet other accessibility needs as they're raised with us. So we really invite people to, if there are barriers to participation, to let us know, and we want to work on those. So um, you thought of every angle. This is pretty exciting. And do, do people have a different way to get a hold of you, um, Rachel, or you, Sharbrian, or is this the best way, the Stitching Abolition website? If they would like to email us related to the convening, they can email us at uh, stitchingabolition at gmail.com. Um, we, as a collective, check the inbox pretty regularly. So if they have very specific questions, they can always email us, and we try to respond in real time as best as possible. Okay. How did you all meet Dorothy Burge? Um, we met her separately. I think we both knew her already when we became friends. So I think that's another sign that we were meant to be. Um, I know Dorothy Burge. I lived in Chicago for around 12 years. Um, I don't live here anymore, although I am frequently back. And I just met her through organizing and activism. Um, she was always there. She was such an incredible right. presence. And I slowly got to know her quilting projects through that. And as soon as I started seeing the work she was doing, I was just blown away by it. Both the like technical ability, like she's a really incredible technical quilter, but also sort of the thought and politics behind them. She always, I always talk about this because I don't think it gets as much attention as her other work, but she did a project about juvenile life without parole, about kids being sentenced to life without parole, where she made um, silhouettes, little quilted silhouettes of young folks in Illinois who'd been sentenced to life without parole. And it just said their name, their, the, the age they were when they were sentenced. And then she asked them to list three things they liked about themselves. And it's just this incredibly haunting collection of portraits um, that I was just like, this is what I this is what I want to do in the world is to make something so beautiful and thoughtful and powerful. 
Um, so I've really been so lucky to be around her and learn from her in Chicago. Shabrian, how about you? Where did you meet Dorothy? So my entry point was inverted. It was quilting first and then learning more just about the, her robust life and all that she has offered um, her community for so long. So she's a part of the Women of Color Quilters Network, who as a collective, they've been making quilts for decades now, um, centered on human rights, social justice, etc. And it was through my mentor, Dr. Carolyn Maslumi, that I came to meet her. And, uh, and from there, just fell in love with her work immediately. But then as you dig and you start to talk, and I remember we had a conversation and I, she started to like slowly peel back the layers. And I was like, when do you sleep? What is, what is all of this? But it was, yeah, I don't know. But uh, yeah, to see such compelling work as Rachel described it perfectly, just always beautifully haunting. Um, and then to come to understand her practices and organizer, et cetera, um, it just continued to increase and build my admiration and respect for her. But it was through WCQN first, uh, and then that's when I came to understand the Chicago powerhouse that is Dorothy Birch. <laughs> Absolutely. Mama Dorothy, she's everywhere. Um, but Charbian, maybe you'd say one more word because you have published a book recently, Diasporic Threads, Black Women, Fiber, and Textiles. Could you say a word about that book? Sure. So I'm very excited. It is a zine project that distills down my dissertation research because I didn't want folks to feel like they had to go on ProQuest and read 400 pages. I wanted something that felt accessible and fun, but it really starts to um, break down how Black women, how we as Black women build um, kinship through making, how we build community. Um, and it also starts to, you know, ask us to ponder sort of when we look at material culture, how do we understand it through a Black feminist lens? How do we start to explore these narratives of liberation um, and the, the centuries of work and labor that we've sort of, um, that have been extracted from us, but also that we've offered, um, how we do that through creative work, especially through like fibers and textiles, et cetera. Um, so within that, you can find a lot of that historical research, but also interviews from seven different um, Black women artists who are amazing and talented um, in their own right. And then there's actually a, um, what is the word? I'm blanking now. Oh, sorry, a directory of um, artists. The Power of Social Media put a call out and there are, I believe, roughly um, 120 women who submitted their information. You can find out about them and their practices um, all there. So if you are interested in the work of Black women through fiber and textiles and you are interested in a critical view of history and how it is that you know we frame our work, you can find it in the zine. That's so great. And, and you... Got your doctorate where? At The Ohio State University. I like that you say The Ohio State University. I went to the University of Michigan, so we have a major <laughs> disagreement. Right yeah. Now. Yeah, but it's okay. In graduate school, I, I let it go. Um, <laughs> so, so, and you were in, the, the, your doctorate is in art and culture? So it's an art education. My department was a very, you know, it's a long name. It's the Department of Arts Administration, Education and Policy. Um, but, Wonderful. but yeah, my, my focus was more art education uh, related. So really diving into, you know, these intersections of African-American history and art, art history, education, um, feminist studies, all those good things. I got to, it was very, very interdisciplinary. I got to blend all those things and, and have a good time. 
Okay, I I am embarrassed that I have not read your book, but I'm going to order it right now. It just came Diasporic out, so you're threads. fine. <laughs> okay, I'm okay. Diasporic Threads, Black Women, Fiber, and Textiles. We have a little segment on this podcast called My Book of Books, What I'm Reading and What I Have to Read. And so this gets added uh, to the Book of Books. Thank you. Um, Let me know what you think. marvelous. Yeah. I will indeed. Um, are there other things either of you are reading that you think... Are, are important for folks to know about. I'm 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 kind of I'm kind of inviting you to add to our book of books. I have both read and then reread and am now teaching um, abolition feminism now. The really incredible book that just came out um, by a collective of really incredible uh, writers, activists, um, academics. Um, so that has been really great for me. Yeah, we had we had Beth Ritchie and Erica Miners on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, marvelous book, really important book. And really just so clearly and so accessibly putting out not only this, like these ideas that are so urgent now, but really laying out the history behind them and how we got to be, to be where we are right now. So that's been great. I, I could have known you were in that in that way of thinking because... One of the things that's so brilliant about that book is at the end, when they go to Chicago and they talk about little projects that you, that are seeds that you don't know where they're going. And I, I found that inspiring because sometimes, again, in our culture, we think everything has to be fast, has to be measured, has to know its impact, has to go to scale. I find all of that disturbing. And I think that what what they do in that book is say, no, you know, you can seed projects take a lot of time and one thing can lead to another you don't have to be so rough with with the movement how about you Shabrian? so in addition i feel like we're all the all of the organizers of stitch by stitch are deep into abolition and feminism now because that was going to be my first one but also um i just revisited um my grandmother's hands and i think it's really important one of the things that i feel very passionately about um, for anyone engaged in this sort of work, especially folks who are organizers, is um, this notion of somatics, like thinking about what it is that we hold within our bodies, how we care for ourselves, how that energy gets transmuted when you're out there and you're actively fighting and all of the different things. I think um, it's very easy to become detached from oneself and one's body within that work. And so I'm always thinking about like how it is that we can become regrounded, how we become more aware of the traumas that we hold from a generational perspective, but also the things that we are absorbing in real time um, and how it is that we work through all of that so that you know we can be here as long as possible. Um, so many folks burn out quickly. I see you know a lot of people with health challenges, et cetera, um, who've been engaging in this work for a very long time. And I don't think that that has to be. I don't think that that has to be the future or necessarily a byproduct of that. So it's like, how do we both care for ourselves, but also um, engage in communal care as we, you know, fight our respective battles? So, You know, I, I, we've talked about this book before, but I just wonder if you've read, Shabrian, the um, Sadea Hartman's book, um, what is it called? Uh, beautiful, it's called um, Beautiful Experiments, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. Do you know that book? Yes, 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 yes. I love, I love Dr. Hartman's work. It is amazing. Um, her, but the whole yeah. idea of speculative history yes. is what kills me. Yes. You know, this idea that we only have the, the ruling class or the, 
the uh, invaders kind of view of who these women were. So she takes those little bits of information, writes a speculative history. I thought that was really, and, and you reminded me of when you were talking about your dive into the history of quilting and so on. Absolutely. As a, you know, I think for myself, it's something I reckon with quite a bit because there are some things that just because of, you know, white supremacist colonial histories, I won't have direct access to primary sources, as my academic friends would say. But I feel like there are ways that I can commune with my ancestors. There are familial histories that I feel connected to. There are diasporic and ancestral histories I feel connected to that, you know, I can continue to build from and, and ideate around. And that's something that excites me. Um, but I, I think, so I had a residency through a, an organization called Archetopia, which was amazing. And I learned how to weave on a backstrap loom and it was um, really beautiful. But I think there, while I was there, the thing that I appreciated, it wasn't just a space for me to come in and learn and get the skill and leave. Um, but it was through Francisco and Naeli and the other folks there that we were able to sort of read, to ideate together. In conversation with them, I was able to learn um, about the ways in which colonialism has affected us and, and where we have overlap, but also where things tend to diverge, which was uh, really interesting. And also what it means to come in, even within you know my Black body, like what am I participating in by like being present here in this space? And there was a lot of contemplation around that. But um, as you know, especially as it relates to textiles, there is this um, tie into, you know, women being the stewards and the bearer of this memory and this knowledge, um, but that oftentimes being exploited, um, you know, that indigenous history and memory and like this constant sort of battle and fight with erasure um, and advocacy for those rights as well. There were just so many different things that I feel like I'm still processing. I was there in May um, that I'm still actively writing about, but I think that program itself was amazing because they require that you sort of come in from a space of introspection, but are always giving you sort of information to absorb, especially um, as someone from the U.S. Like, what does it mean? What's the knowledge that we bring? How do sort of time and space kind of compete with one another? And what is what's the meaning I'm ascribing to this moment? And then what is the reality? What are the truths that are here? And so it was really great just to have that time as an artist to just make and to be and to create, um, but to also know that I now have um, friends and allies and vice versa who are there and we are in many ways um, always sort of interrogating these colonial histories and figuring out how to sort of carve out space for us and our communities outside of that. Um, but I, I think while I was there, the thing that sort of struck me um, was that there is always like there are these like small moments of active resistance happening every day, specifically through making. Um, the use of art as an invocation for resistance there is so strong and so present. Um, and I think that really gave me um, a lot of reinvigoration and inspiration about like how I can approach my own practice um, and continue to shape my own voice, really. You want to add anything, Rachel? Yeah, I mean, I was, as Shabrian mentioned, I, I was really involved in international solidarity work in Mexico, like 20 starting 20 years ago which is now a while ago um but i was i lived in mexico for about a year i was really involved in supporting movements in chiapas and oaxaca for a long time and art played a huge role in that right not only learning from the artists and organizers and seeing the roles that art played there but also the role that art could play in international solidarity work so i spent a lot of time exhibiting the 
work of uh, Mexican and indigenous artists in Chicago or helping it tour or selling things to help raise money from work back there. Um, but I also want to add, we just added a really exciting workshop to the Stitch by Stitch schedule um, with uh, Cordelia Rizzo, who's a really incredible academic and artist. Um, she is a Mexican artist who's done a lot of work alongside um, uh, feminist movements using embroidery to protest uh, the di disappearances and femicides, so that the murder of women. Um, and she's going to be talking about that work and also how we sort of approach it from an abolitionist lens. What does it mean to call for justice when the state is often the per perpetrator of the crimes that you're uh, speaking out about? Um, so I'm really excited that she'll be able to be a part of this the conversation as well. We're really lucky to have her. Yeah, speaking of the crimes of the state, we're witnessing right now the the... Once again, the kind of rule of white supremacist minority, zealots, um, cruel uh, right-wing nuts. So I'm actually interested to see what happens at this conference around an art project that fights back against um, the idiotic Supreme Court. That is definitely going to be a topic of conversation. I know... Uh, Sabneet uh, Talwar and I are co-teaching a class this summer, and we just did a whole how do we rethink this week's agenda <laughs> to talk more about reproductive justice. Um, yeah, it feels very urgent at the moment. Yeah. So say just one more word about the role, the, the role of artists as you see it, your own role as activist artists, as abolitionist artists, but also what, what is the role of the artist and the arts uh, in in culture, in our society? What should it be? <laughs> it's a small question. Come on. That, so my response to that changes all the time. And it's not that it changes, it's just very layered. But I will say that um, one of the many roles of the artist is to facilitate inquiry. I think art, art should spark more questions than like necessarily give answers. Um, and I think that the more, you know, you encourage people to think critically, to be introspective, to sort of reckon with some things, to, to elicit some discomfort, I think that that's a very important role of um, artists and artist work. And it's something that I'm very interested in. I don't want folks to leave feeling as though, oh, I mean, sure, you can learn things, but oh, now I know all there is to know. Sometimes I don't know. Mm. I'm not the expert. I don't know. And I want us to continue to be curious. I want us to continue to inquire. And I want us to continue to be in a space of active learning um, and curiosity. I think that's really important to me. Yeah, there are so many potential answers and so many good answers to this question that are already out there. I know I can say for me personally as an artist, I think art can be a form of research. I think that's something that's really powerful for me. So how through making art can we learn about our histories? Can we collect data? Can we unearth unspoken stories? Um, you know, art can make visible things that are not immediately obvious or not publicly, the public isn't aware of. Um, and I think, Perhaps most importantly, art can help direct resources, whether that's human energy or institutional resources or money 
or skills uh, towards and alongside grassroots movements who are ad addressing sort of the systemic issues um, underlying a lot of the things we're talking about. I'm, I'm much less interested in making, I'm, I am interested in making art that starts a conversation, but I'm also really interested in making art that helps move people to action as well. Because um, without the, the action piece of it, I worry that the conversation often goes nowhere. The, those are really, really profound and helpful answers to my provocation. But I'm thinking of two people in my life. One is my friend who passed away a few years ago at the age of 92, Maxine Green. And she used to say, art is more than castles in the sky. Um, art allows us to release our imaginations and to imagine a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. And I've always clung to that as a, you know, she, she, she was very involved in aesthetics and the philosophy of art and so on. But um, she, she also would point out that when you talk about imagination, don't get all hung up on this some touchy-feely, lovely... Uh, the she would say, it took an incredible imagination to imagine Auschwitz. And so what she would say is, uh, I want you to think about a social imagination, imagination of justice, an imagination of freedom. And the other person who comes to mind is my former neighbor, Gwendolyn Brooks, the great Chicago poet and artist, who um, she, she had this wonderful... Um, poem on visiting the Picasso in downtown Chicago. You may know this poem, but she says, does man love art? And her response, man visits art but cringes. Art hurts. Art urges voyages. And there's something so compact in that little statement. Art urges voyages. And I hear you both saying that. You know, it encourages curiosity. It encourages a new look, an, a, a different angle of regard. I think that's that's really important, and your work just is blowing my mind. I'm so excited about this quilting project and all the heritage that it that it calls on, and all the future that it that it looks toward. I, I really find it so so useful. I'm going to ask you one last question, if it's okay, um, and that is: This is called "Under the Tree." It's borrowing a metaphor from the civil rights movement and the Black Freedom Movement of the '60s. Um, where freedom schools met everywhere, including under a tree. But the, the, the other part of it is it's a seminar on freedom. So I'd be interested in just a word or two about how you think about freedom these days, how you think about freedom and or unfreedom uh, in, in this moment. I think, especially in the last few years, but even in this moment, for me, freedom is really connected to care um, how we care for each other, how we meet our needs, um, that, that we cannot be free if we're not also cared for. Um, and so, yes, I don't, <laughs> maybe I'm stuck there, but thinking about, yeah, thinking about reaching freedom by caring for each other and, and building up systems of care. Um, I would say for me, freedom is very much intertwined with how I view myself as a future ancestor. So creating freedom beyond this individualized moment for me, but in a world that I'll no longer be in, because I know freedom is, I think about it today, 
probably felt like, you know, the grandest dream for my ancestors at one point. But I believe it was because they saw me. They saw a world beyond themselves. And that was what made them relentless in their pursuits. So I hold that with me in my own pursuits for freedom. I'll tell you what, what comes to my mind. And, and this is just something for us to ponder together at some point. You know, I think we can point again and again, and we're point, we pointed earlier to Do, this Dobbs decision, Supreme Court. You know, we can point to unfreedom. We can point to illiteracy as unfreedom. We can point to prisons, police state, you know, and all these things. But I've often had this paradoxical idea about freedom, which is that freedom, you, you, you are the most free when you're identifying the unfreedoms around you and acting against them. In other words, when you can see a wall that limits your humanity or the humanity of, you know, your community or your, the people around you or the people down the block, and then you act against it, that's when you're free. And I'll give you one example that I think many of us have experienced. When, you're, when I was in the street January in January, you know, after Trump was at Trump's inauguration, or when I was in the street last Friday, I felt freer in the street against the Supreme Court than I felt the day before that, you know, because I was just living my life. But suddenly there was a wall set up and I was arm in arm, heart to heart with a group of people trying to breach that wall. That felt free, even though it's a paradox because obviously we were being fucked. But, you know, but it's a, it's a funny, you know, it's a funny paradox to me. Anyway, that's how I sometimes think about it. It's weird, I know. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for your time, for your wisdom. I feel newly inspired. I have, I'm filled with curiosity and energy, and I have to go forward and learn a lot more. But this was a, an exciting time with Shabrian Plummer and Rachel Wallace. Just marvelous work you're doing and really inspiring. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. It's been great to be here with you both and to be in conversation around such important issues and topics. Yeah, thank you so much. I sometimes feel like all I do is talk about quilts, <laughs> but oftentimes only to other quilters. So it's exciting to sort of expand this conversation we've been having in a very small group uh, and to start widening it out to be in conversation with other people who are not necessarily thinking about quilts all the time. Wow, I had a great time, lady. Are you okay? I'm good. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast, Ergo, to my co-conspirators, Light Ailee Lee and Roxana Espos, and to Jordan Allen for producing and engineering. This is Jordan's last episode with Under the Tree. She's moving on to another wondrous opportunity. But before she leaves, I want to express my deep gratitude and abiding admiration for her. Thank you, Jordan, for bringing your wisdom, your energy and insight, your remarkable skills to our shared enterprise. I wish for you all good things. Yes, keep going strong and I'll be listening. You all just heard Dorothy Birch evoked and referenced in this conversation. You should know that the next episode of this podcast is an extended conversation with the magical mama Dorothy. And it's essentially Stitch by Stitch part two. Be sure to check it out. 
Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a generous quilt of many colors and countless textures, stitch by stitch. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.